not on the flat plains like here, but on the mountainsides. Well, in this passage we'll consider today, we'll see Jesus as, and his disciples reap a spiritual gospel harvest in a very unlikely place, Samaria. We want to take a look at three things today. Jesus sows the gospel. Secondly, Jesus inspires his disciples. And then thirdly, Jesus reaps the harvest. Let's consider verses 7 through 30, first off. Jesus sows the gospel. And notice, Jesus initiates a conversation with this woman from Samaria. And we see here that Jesus was willing to go against cultural and ethnic taboos in order to minister to a soul. You see, Jewish rabbinic tradition strictly cautioned a man from speaking with women in general. And John tells us that Jesus spoke alone to this woman from Samaria. And she being alone without other women drawing water from this well probably indicates that she was well known in the community as a woman of ill repute, of having an immoral lifestyle. And so she was alone there. No one else was with her drawing water. And Jesus dared in his culture to speak and engage her. For Jesus to speak with her alone in his Jewish culture would also be seen as him inappropriately flirting with this woman. Look at the reaction of the disciples in verse 27 that we just read. And it says, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you speaking with her? And to make things even more socially and culturally awkward, to say the least, Jesus was not only speaking with a woman, which was a taboo in his Jewish culture, but he was also speaking and conversing with a Samaritan of all things and a Samaritan woman of all things. For us to understand the bravery and the courage of Christ to cross these cultural taboos to minister to a soul, we have to understand a little bit about the Samaritans to remind ourselves about who they were. In John 4, 9, here in the passage that we've just, we're considering, John wrote, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And why is that so? Well, some of you will recall the history of the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. It captures this phrase in verse 9, captures the historic and the racial animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans lived in an area in between the Sea of Galilee to the north and Jerusalem to the south. They lived right in between there. And this animosity between Samaritan and Jews goes back to the exile of the northern tribes of Israel as recorded in 2 Kings 17, verses 23, 24 through 41. After the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes and took them captive, they, the Assyrians, colonized and backfilled, as it were, Samaria, the place where they had just conquered and hauled off the people from that land. They colonized Samaria with people from other lands that they had previously conquered. And they hired a Jewish priest to teach those colonists the Jewish religion. And they did this more out of superstition than true reverence for the Lord. They were thinking that if 
their colonists could understand the God of this land who's been here and helped the prior people, then maybe, too, their colonists could prosper in their farming. They thought their colonists would prosper better in this land as they worshipped this Jehovah God that they heard that the Jews had worshipped. But over time, these colonists mixed together both Jewish things that they had learned as well as their old pagan beliefs and practices. You see, in missions, we consider this type of mixing between the truth of God's word with ancient practices that the people that were reaching, whether in the jungles or in the plains or in the deserts or in the urban areas, this mixing together of God's truth with their previous beliefs, we call this syncretism. That's what was happening, or that's what happened also there in the northern part of Israel in Samaria. A syncretism happened, a synchronizing of their new beliefs as well as their old, which is dangerous. And so the Jews, therefore, despised the Samaritans as not true ethnic and religious Israelites. Also in history, we see that there were remnants of Jews that stuck around even after the exile, and they intermingled with these colonists, these Assyrian colonists. And then there were half-breeds that became the Samaritans as well. All of that was mixed in there. And even from what we've just considered in these in this passage so far, we can see something for our own evangelism, brothers and sisters, and our own missions work. We have to be willing, like Jesus, to cross cultural and ethnic boundaries as Jesus did. It's not easy, no matter what part of the world we're in. Here or in the other places of the world where we've lived and labored, we're all the same as humans. We get used to those that we're like, and that when we engage people who are not like us culturally, or even the way we look by their skin colors, we feel very awkward. And as Christians, we've got to get over that by God's grace and the Spirit's help. Because Christ is showing us an example of crossing cultural boundaries in order to engage and minister to this Samaritan woman's heart. And we need to follow his, his, his example. When Jesus gave the church the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, he said, make disciples of all the nations. That phrase, all the nations, doesn't mean all the nation states or the political entities or countries that we're used to thinking in. But when we go back to the original language, he's speaking about different people groups, different ethnic linguistic people groups. Jesus wants them in our hearts, to be the targets of our evangelistic thrust. Different peoples, different ethno-linguistic people groups, he wants us to have an eye on to reach for the gospel and for his sake. People groups that are different ethnically, culturally, and linguistically. Jesus wants his church to have its eye on making disciples through the gospel of all the ethnically different peoples of the world. That's our mission, given to us in Matthew 28. Do we all have this all-people-groups mentality that Jesus wants his church to have? Are we growing in this perspective when he gives us opportunities to engage in evangelism and missions that crosses cultures? Do we shy away from it? Or do we, by faith and in confidence in him, Obey him and take that opportunity.
We have to face those questions ourselves. You know, the demographics of our country are a-changing. We all know that. We have been changing as a country in our demographic mix for many, many decades now. And one of the reasons for this is the phenomenal increase in international migration in our country and around the world. In fact, the former UN Secretary Kofi Annan in 2006 said this, quote, international migration is one of the greatest issues of our century. We have entered a new era of mobility, unquote. Now we can either as Christians view this phenomenon, this worldwide phenomenon of an increase in international migration, we can see it as a danger and react to it that way, or we can welcome it as an opportunity for the gospel to reach people unlike ourselves in our own backyard with our own neighbors as an opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. Missiologist Michael Pocock wrote this, quote, around the world, Christians are waking up to the reality that the massive movement of peoples in migration presents an unprecedented opportunity for spreading the gospel, unquote. And Scott Arbader, the president of World Relief, perhaps the largest evangelical organization ministering to refugees and immigrants, has said, quote, God is up to something dramatic. The mass migration that now brings us into contact with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is both a profound privilege and a daunting responsibility, unquote. What's our perspective? What's your perspective here in Stockton to this increase in migration? Here in Stockton, as in Sacramento, as well as in the Bay Area, where we're from, we know that we are in a place of great ethnic diversity. How do we view that? Do we have the gospel in the, the lenses, as it were, of the Great Commission on and view that opportunity, uh, view it as an opportunity, or do we view it without those Great Commission make disciples of all the nations, glasses, as it were, and see it as a threat. I trust it's the former, that we see these opportunities that we have all around us in this diverse place in Northern California that we live as an opportunity to spread the gospel and reach the nations in our own backyard. How are we going to respond to this opportunity? And for you, my friends, who are here today, this passage, this portion of the passage that we've considered so far, there's a word here for you. As a visitor, I don't know your state. I'm not one of your pastors or elders. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're at and you're standing with the Lord. And so I say to you, in what we've considered so far in John 4, my friend, perhaps you're here feeling like a Samaritan, an outcast from your family, an outcast at work, an outcast at your school, an outcast in your neighborhood. And here you can see how Jesus kindly speaks with an outcast Samaritan woman. You know, my friend, Jesus said in another portion of the Gospels, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. What view, friend, do you have of Jesus? Do you see him as a harsh judge who only wants to smack you for all of your mistakes that you've made in your heart and in your actions? He is a judge. He is holy at that. And yet he is also mixed with his justice and holiness. He is a compassionate one who crosses cultures, who goes to the outcasts like the Samaritans, who goes to the outcasts perhaps like you and seeks to draw you and woo you by his grace to come to his feet and to kneel before him and to see him as the only savior that's fit for your own soul. He's the only one that can be that substitute for your sins there upon the cross. And that through him, if you come to him in simple faith, repenting and turning from your sins and looking to him, you will find forgiveness of sins and you'll find the belonging and the sense of being accepted into not just a small family, but a worldwide family, the family of God. You'll be adopted into that family through Jesus Christ. And there you will find true belonging. Come to him today as you hear the gospel. Well, as we move on in this text here, we want to also see that Jesus, in verse 10, says that he is the living water. He's the living water. Jesus engages the woman with a topic that is very much upon her mind. Water. Physical water. Now, Jesus is obviously speaking not of physical water, but of spiritual water. And in the Gospel of John, the metaphor of living water is used elsewhere, like in John 7, verses 38 and 39. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this metaphor, which means the wonderful, abounding overflow of life that the Spirit brings when a person comes to faith in Him, when a person receives eternal life. There is this living water, a wonderful, abounding life that the Spirit brings. And yet the woman's thinking is fixated on her horizontal concern, physical water. And so she interprets living water as physical water. Jesus speaks about living water and she responds in verse 15, give me this water. She wants it for herself so that she won't have to thirst again and that she doesn't have to continue to go to the well to draw physical water. But Jesus was gently leading her in the conversation, to think of her soul's not so much horizontal relationship with physical water, but her vertical relationship with God, which is more important. This living water is a water springing up into eternal life. And later in John 17, 3, Jesus defines this everlasting life as a believer's entering into an intimate relationship with God, such that We truly know Him. We truly have a relationship with Him. That's what eternal life is. A relationship, an intimate relationship with God through Christ. And here too we can apply even this segment of the passage to our lives. In our evangelism and missions work, brothers and sisters, we should tell those that we share the gospel with about the abundant relational blessings that come from becoming a disciple of Christ. This living water that the Spirit brings to those who close and come to be 
with Christ and receive Him as their Lord and Savior. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit takes up residence in us. And the Spirit blesses us with a sense of peace with God, as it says in Romans. And He brings to us a joy that's in Christ. And the Spirit gives us a sense of God's fatherly and unending love for us. The Spirit also gives us liberty from the fear of the devil and evil spirits, which is a huge, attractive element to people in the parts of the world where we've labored. In animistic religions, they're frightened, they're terrified by being possessed and harassed by evil spirits, because they really are. And the thought of being delivered from this by coming to Christ God often uses to attract them to himself. And this living water also includes that God, through the spirit of Jesus, delivers us from the fear of death. And on and on we can go. The living waters, the abundant relationship that we have in God through Christ. And to you, my unbelieving friend, you can be like that Samaritan woman. You can be actually fixated on just the horizontal concerns of life. Make enough money to pay the bills. Make more money so that you can enjoy some leisure and pleasures or achieve this project or status, and then you'll be happy. But Jesus in the gospel is gently leading you today, my friend, through this passage, like the Samaritan, to get your eyes off of just your horizontal concerns and upon the vertical relationship with God, which is more important. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? My friend, put your trust in Christ. Get your relationship vertically right with God through Christ. Start there. And all of these horizontal things will take care of themselves. I know the blessing of forgiveness of sins in Christ and a renewed relationship with God. And then as we walk through the text here, looking at verses 16 and 18, Jesus shows himself to be the revealer of hearts. The revealer of hearts. Jesus truly wants to lead this woman to drink of the springs of everlasting life. But in order to have this benefit, he needs to bring her sexual sins to light. He needs to reveal them, not to himself, but to her. And in order... For her to have this living water of eternal life that springs up by the Spirit, she must confess and turn from her sins. And so he confronts her. He says, go get your husband. He asks about her personal life. And she says, she has no husband. And Jesus confronts her. That's right, you've had five husbands and the one you're with is not your husband. He's confronting her sins. You see, in our evangelism, learning from Christ here, in our evangelism and missions work, we have to bring up sin. It's unpopular. People will cringe, not only here in our culture when you bring up sin from the pulpit or you're sharing in the pew with a, a friend who's not a Christian, you bring up their sins, they'll cringe or they'll pull back. On the other side of the world, we bring up sins in offending God in judgment. They'll cringe, they'll turn away, they'll snicker, they'll roll their eyes. But whatever the response, we need to be faithful as Christ is. And in our evangelism and missions work, we need to bring up the reality of sins. Like Jesus, in order for those to whom we minister to receive the good news of forgiveness of sins through Christ, we need to first tell them of the bad news of how their sins have caused a distance between them 
and a holy God. And in some cultures, we need to paint this picture of the bad news, not so much in terms of legal guilt, though that would be right to do and biblical to do, but in some cultures that are more attuned to the relational honor and shame aspect of living. We need to bring up the gospel in those terms as well, about honor and shame. For instance, in some cultures, honor and shame cultures, the parable of the prodigal son with its message of a broken relationship and honor and shame that's happening in that young son shaming his father and leaving the father's safety and employment and home to live a ruckus life and bringing shame to himself as a son and to his father and to his family. That type of parable and then the reconciliation that happens afterward oftentimes resonates with people of an honor-shame culture. And perhaps you know friends in your workplace or in your neighborhood who are from cultures that are not so much forensic, or that's a big word for legal, and thinking about guilt and sin, though that's true and biblical, but they're more attuned to the collective keeping peace within the family and always being with the family and bringing honor to the family and not shame. Perhaps an adjustment to your evangelistic approach and bringing like the parable of the prodigal son to them and telling them a story like this will by God's grace resonate with them more about their need to be reconciled with God and friend if you're here today and not a disciple or a follower of Jesus then you need to know that you still have your guilt and your shame of your sins upon you if you're not in Christ but if you put your trust in Jesus and turn from your sin and your sinful ways to follow him, God promises in the gospel to wipe away your sins by what Christ did upon the cross. His sacrifice there upon the cross wipes away your sins. He bears the penalty for your sins upon the cross and he gives you in exchange his righteousness. And you will stand in a new father and a childlike relationship with the true and the living God. It's your choice today, my friend, to repent of your sins or to carry on in your sins and to have the frown of God upon you. Or if you come in belief and acceptance of Christ, to have the smile and the favor of God upon you. And there here, back in the text, moving on in verses 19 through 24, Jesus also reveals himself as the restorer of true worship. The Samaritans and this Samaritan woman's problem with worship is with the proper place of worship. She's asking, did you catch it? She's asking, Jesus, where's the proper place of worship? Is it there in Jerusalem where you Jews are all from? Or is it up here in Samaria? But Jesus transcends her thinking and the Samaritans thinking about worship. He says she's asking the wrong question. It's not a question of the proper place of worship, but a question of the proper condition and the content of worship. True worship consists of spirit and truth, Jesus says. And if we took the time, we would see that his usage of spirit here is, his meaning is that true worshipers are people who are born again and regenerated by the spirit. And truth, as oftentimes is, seen in John here. Truth, he's talking about, is 
True worship is focused on Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And here in our evangelism and missions work, we can apply this to our lives. Are we helping local believers in new new church plants here, domestically in America, in, in other parts of the world, to focus on worship that comes from regenerate believers and who are focused on Jesus? We need to pray and support and ask our missionaries who come and stand behind this pulpit and give reports. What kind of church are you planting? You don't need to see it, say it in a uh, confrontive way, but understand what kind of churches are being planted on the other side of the world. Are they churches that emphasize that there's a need for a regenerate membership? Do they take that seriously? Are they seeking to be a Christ-focused ministry in that church plant? Because that is what Christ says the Father wants in his churches and worshipers who are regenerate and are focused upon Jesus. And then, moving on in verses 25 and 26, we see that Jesus is the Christ. That's what's emphasized here. The woman seems to pick up on Jesus' meaning when he talked about truth and knowing what's behind that and how that links to Messiah and Christ and he's the church, he's the truth. Just like he said in John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. She seems to pick up on that because she turns the conversation suddenly, it seems, to talk about Messiah or the Christ. And so she begins to speak with him about Messiah and Christ. And think about the shift that's happened in the conversation with Jesus and this Samaritan woman. At the front, she's talking just about physical water, but now she's willing to talk about Messiah and Christ. Jesus has succeeded in bringing her focus away from physical water and away from the controversy controversy about the place of worship. And he brings her focus to where he's wanted her focus to be, on himself, on his person, on who he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the long-expected Savior of the world. But he took steps to get her there. And brothers and sisters, in our evangelism and missions work, we too need to follow Christ's example. Sometimes it's the first encounter with a a friend who's not a Christian, that we see the Spirit illuminate their hearts and they get it. They understand their condition before God as a sinner, before a holy God. They get it and they're willing to come to Christ. And perhaps some of you came to Christ that way. But for some of us, I dare say, maybe most of us, it was a process of hearing the gospel once, twice, thrice, maybe more times, and the Spirit slowly illuminating us, opening up our hearts, And regenerating us to understand, ah, I get it now. Just like this Samaritan woman here. And we need to be like Christ, patient to take them step by step. And one of the things that we see Christ doing is that Jesus is contextualizing his message to this Samaritan woman. And what I mean by contextualize is simply this. It's the process of taking the biblical contents of the Christian message and just packaging it in a way that increases the likelihood of our audience, our unbelieving audience, understanding what we're saying. 
Christ was doing that. She wanted to talk about water, I'll talk about water, but I'm gonna pull her a little bit, and talk, her about, talk to her about living water, and try to get her to think about her relationship. She wants to talk about worship, okay. She wants to talk about the physical place of worship, no. It's about the spiritual, and he pulls her a little bit further. And then she asks about Christ, and now he's got her where he wants her, in a good sense, to talk about her soul and his being. And so too we ourselves need to present uncompromisingly the truths of the gospel, of God, of man, of Jesus, of the cross, of faith, of repentance, and put it in a way that our friends can understand. Contextualizing starts with understanding something of the audience's culture, their history, and their language. And we all do that, don't we? If you're a Sunday school teacher or as a Christian mom and dad and you're evangelizing your Sunday school kids or your own kids in your home, do we speak about justification and sanctification and glorification? Maybe we do in catechism class with them. But more times than not, I believe, you're probably ratcheting back your vocabulary and helping Johnny and Susie understand the gospel in terms that they'll understand. What are you doing? You're contextualizing. You're understanding their culture, their capacity to understand these things. And you're talking about a good God in heaven. And you're talking about doing bad things and under explaining sin to them. And you're explaining how Christ is loving and what he did upon the cross and their need to believe and trust and follow Jesus. You take it, the gospel, and break it down for them. You're contextualizing. And we need to continue to do that with people that we meet, especially if they're not from a Christian background and from another culture. You see, Paul did this as well in Acts 17 when he spoke in terms that the philosophers in Athens could understand. And we need to learn about the various people groups around us in our own communities. And that's going to help us better contextualize the gospel message to them. We do this all the time in the work that we do in other parts of the world as missionaries. And this helps them, the people that we're reaching, better understand the gospel. And you'll find the same with those neighbors who come from different cultures as you contextualize the message to them. Sometimes when we reach people from cultures that are more concrete and relational, we need to also not only contextualize the verbal message that we bring, but how we live before them. They're in a concrete relational world that they live in in their culture. What you, how you live oftentimes speaks louder to them than what you say. And so if you help them, these people from other cultures who are unbelievers, how to fill out some immigration form, how to uh, you know, register at the DMV, or how to go grocery shopping. These from concrete relational backgrounds, they'll see your love for them demonstrated, and they'll give you an ear on what you want to say about the gospel. And that's another way of contextualizing our gospel approach. And also in our evangelism and missions work, we must keep Jesus as the focus of our message. Remember what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Jesus sent his disciples out on mission with these words, but you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls his church, whether here in America or on the other side of the world, to be witnesses of him. Our gospel needs to be full, chock full, of Christ Jesus content. Where we've labored for 18 years, the big country, on the other side of the world, or in another country that we served in for about two and a half years, oftentimes we see uh, folks, Christians, who will share the gospel, but oftentimes their sharing is just their testimony. And as we're discipling them for themselves to evangelize their own people and their own uh, minority groups, oftentimes when they first start off, they feel that the sharing Christ, sharing Christ and preaching the gospel to others is just sharing their testimony. And they stop. And we say, okay, what are you going to say anymore? And we have to help them realize that that's a good place to start, to make a connection with people. But you've got to go on to talk about who Christ is. You've got to go on and apply and help people to understand why he came, his mission, and his purpose in the world. And so do we. Our evangelism needs to, can start perhaps as, with our testimony, but it needs to also, most importantly, get to Christ. It's all about Christ. And then as we drop down into verses 27 and 30, as we walk through the text here, notice the response of the men in the village. I think this is a, a pivotal portion of our text here. Notice the response of the men of the village. They heard this woman, this Samaritan woman, testify what she had just experienced at the well in encountering Jesus. They heard her testimony. And they all started to march over to Jesus. Keep this verse in mind. We're going to consider it later on in this passage. And so first off, we've seen in this first point, Jesus sows the gospel. But secondly, more quickly, Jesus inspires his disciples. Verses 31 and 38. The disciples are fixated also on the horizontal. Look at verse 8. We are told that the disciples left Jesus for a time to buy food for the team. And they have been thinking horizontally about the concerns of food and drink for the team. They've been doing that for a few hours now. They've been doing their duty to care for Jesus and the team. And then in verse 27, jumping forward here, the disciples re-enter the scene. They've been thinking, as I said, for several hours, horizontally, food, drink, for myself, for ourselves, and for the team, for Jesus. And so they bring back food, and they tell Jesus to eat something. And so when Jesus replies, I have food to eat, of which you do not know, they almost comically respond, huh? Did someone give him something to eat earlier? They're just thinking horizontally. And then Jesus goes on to explain his meaning of food. It is spiritual food of doing the redemptive work that the Father had sent him to do. And brothers and sisters, aren't we like the disciples at times too? Even as, as disciples of Christ now, we're rightly busy with all of our horizontal duties, earning money so we can feed and clothe and care for our families, taking care of the kids, taking care of aging parents, taking care of the house and other assets, etc., etc. All legitimate, all well and good. Like the disciples, that's part of our duties. But the danger is that we get fixated on just the horizontal 
that we lose sight of the important, vertical, heavenly, redemptive work of the kingdom of God. One of the things that Jesus does repeatedly in his teachings is to challenge his disciples to not be so fixated on the horizontal, but to place more importance on the vertical work of the kingdom of God. We see that here. We see that in Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. Or Jesus' words to Martha in Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about so many things. And he goes on to say, only one thing was really necessary. Mary has chosen the good part of sitting at my feet and listening and engaging with me. And that's not going to be taken away from her. And sometimes we're like Martha, aren't we? Especially at Christmas season. Lots of things to do horizontally. Let's not forget our own souls in this busy season of life. And then, moving on here, the disciples are urged by Jesus to have a higher kingdom aspiration. Jesus says to his horizontally focused disciples in verse 35, listen to this, lift up your eyes, guys, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white unto harvest. The disciples were about to enter into a spiritual harvest right there in Samaria. It was a place that the disciples themselves had never sown any seeds of the gospel. The Old Testament prophets had sown redemptive seeds in Samaria centuries before. John the Baptist had sowed gospel seeds in Samaria. And now Jesus, in our passage, was sowing gospel seed in our uh, in this passage, in that place, as we've just been reading. And now the disciples were going to have the privilege of reaping a gospel harvest. And Jesus said to them, lift up your eyes. I think he wanted them to literally do that. Because remember, in verse 30, that passage that's pivotal, that I told you to keep in mind, in verse 30, we're told that all of the men of the city were marching out to the place where Jesus and his disciples were. You know, if I were to paint a scene, if I were a cinematographer, this is how I would shoot that, this scene. I would have the, the camera angle uh, be right here from the viewpoint of Jesus. I would have his disciples maybe about 10 feet, 20 feet in front of the camera. And Jesus is speaking these words, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. And behind them would be that Samaritan city where all of the men of the city are coming out to meet him. And I would have Jesus point and say, look guys, look at the field. Look, get your eyes up. Look at the harvest, it's coming to you. And I would have his disciples turn around and look at the men of the village, kicking up a dust on that dusty road, coming out to meet them. He said, the harvest is coming. Stop thinking about food and eating horizontally. You don't get it. Get your eyes up on the harvest right now. Some spiritual harvesting we're about to do right now. That's what he's saying to them. And these are the words, brothers and sisters, of the Lord that I want to be ringing in our ears today. Lift up our eyes to the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. Do Jesus' words grip us? Or are we like the disciples, so preoccupied on the horizontal concerns of life? What harvest of souls is right before you here in the Stockton 
Lathrop area. And Jesus is saying to you as a church, lift up your eyes. The world is here. There are immigrants to reach. There are international college students to reach. There are people here from different cultures that need to be reached, as well as people from our own cultures. I don't want to neglect them. What is our perspective? And so we've looked then at the first two points. Jesus sows the gospel seed. Jesus inspires his disciples. And then thirdly, Jesus reaps the harvest, verses 39 and 42. The despised, half-breed, Jewish Gentile Samaritans are coming to Christ here in this part of, the, part of the passage, 39 through 42. Imagine yourself as a disciple at that scene. All these former enemies, the despised Samaritans, before your very eyes, God is awakening their dead souls and giving them a new saving faith in Jesus Christ. How would you feel? I hope we would say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we get to witness this. I don't care if we're a Reformed Baptist. I hope you would say hallelujah and praise the Lord. Wow, we get to see this. And parenthetically, these past 20 years, being on the other side of the world, we have seen hunger for Christ. For all those 20 years, uh, I had to turn down so much gospel work. There was enough work for 10 full-time missionaries to do that I was just exposed to. I just had to select. There's such an awakening going on in that part of the world, in Asia, as well as in Africa, as well as in South America, which is known as the majority world, the two-thirds world. Uh, certainly God is doing wonderful things here in North America, and praise Him for it. And yet in that part of the world, there are people coming to Christ. In Nepal, a place where I was able to go twice with my family and labor and train some men who are Nepalese there, there's a, an astonishing uh, growth uh, in, in Christianity there, that even one of our guides, we were uh, hiking up into the Himalayan mountains there, uh, the foothills, not the, we weren't hiking, we weren't mountain climbing, but we were just hiking in some of the hills. Hills are like 3,000 feet high, you know, relative to the rest of the Himalayan mountain range. And this Hindu guide on this day trek, I got to know, we got to know as a friend, and I asked him, I told him we were Christians, and he told me he was Hindu. And he said, without me pulling this out of him, and I knew this was happening in Nepal, an astonishing rate of people coming to him, coming to Christ. He said, a lot of my Hindu friends are becoming Christians. And I looked at my friend, this, this guy, and I said, why is that so? He says, I don't know. I said, okay. And we did what we could to share the gospel with him. And so coming back to the text here, these disciples are entering into a time of seeing the Samaritans these enemies of the Jews coming to Christ before their very eyes. How exciting. And you hear them saying things, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow. Jesus is reaping a harvest there in Samaria of souls in a very unlikely place among the Samaritans. In our hearts, brothers and sisters, who are our Samaritans? Who is a Samaritan to us? People of a certain place? People of a certain social class? People of a certain ethnicity? People of a certain race? 
Could God be reaping a harvest of souls or intend to reap a harvest of souls to Jesus among our Samaritans and he wants us to be a part of it? Could it be? Could it be? I'll leave you thinking about that. I trust the Spirit will lead and guide your hearts to consider that question. Well, we've taken a look at three things. Jesus sowing the gospel. Jesus inspiring his disciples. And thirdly, Jesus reaping the harvest. It's no coincidence that Jesus has his disciples with him to witness and experience this harvest of souls among the Samaritans. Jesus is getting them prepared because the church was just about to enter into Jesus' worldwide mission of salvation. They were just about to do that, and Jesus is giving them a taste of what it's going to be like. And later in a few years, Jesus would tell them more clearly of his global mission's goal when he said to them in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit who has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. May our hearts look to always partner with Jesus in reaching people from all over the world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for this passage that reminds us of his passion for the hearts of souls, regardless of their cultural and ethnic linguistic backgrounds. We pray, Father, by the help of the Spirit of Jesus, you would help us to get over any cultural awkwardness. We pray that you would help us to stay on a process of having what you have put in our spiritual DNA through the Spirit, a desire to make disciples of every people group of this world. Help us here in Stockton, there in Livermore, in whatever place you place us, to be those who make disciples of the nations, and we'll give you glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.